New Perspectives on Irish History, Dreams, Themes, Myth and Ecology. This series looks at Irish history from different perspectives, starting from the time when the island of Ireland was a great forest. It talks about the first inhabitants, their lifestyles, and how they differed from the world we live in today. The series seeks to give perspectives other than the military-focused accounts of previous historical series. In this programme, we talk to Sean McDonough about climate change, to Joe Murray about action from Ireland. We talk about Dick Martin, humanitarian and champion of animal rights. And we talk to Niall McNamara about Charles Stuart Parnell. I can change the world With my own two hands Make it a better place With my own two hands Make it a kinder place With my own two hands With my own, with my own Sean McDonough talks about the catastrophic effects if we do not reduce our emissions of carbon dioxide and methane and other gases into the atmosphere. The corporate world, particularly the world of uh, uh, um, petrochemicals, the oil industry, the car industry, uh, the electrical industry, particularly in the United States, they started a program, a campaign of basically trying to rubbish climate science and they've been very, very successful. To counter that in some ways, in 1988, a group of, uh, an organisation was set up with people from both the United Nations Environment Programme, which is in Kenya, and also in terms of uh, the World Meteorological Organisation. So it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was a group of scientists, there are now about 3,000, they go across the board from meteorologists right across to biologists, marine biologists, and they look at the best research. They don't do research themselves, mm. but they try every five to seven years to collate what has been said and to make it very clear what the impact of this is now and will be in the future. The impact that carbon is having, carbon dioxide is having on, this, on the oceans, it's making them much more acidic, which is having a knock-on effect on creatures such as crustaceans, etc. Now, it was very, very clear that climate change is happening. Uh, it's very clear that climate change is a, big, the, a major component of it, is human activity, particularly burning fossil fuel. Uh, there are fears that if we continue on, a, on a, um, the basis of continuing doing what we're doing, we could have an average global temperature rise of 4 degrees Celsius by the end of this, de- uh, this uh, century. Yeah. That would be catastrophic. It would actually bring about a geological change. It would transform, for example, the Amazon from extraordinary uh, tropical rainforest with an enormous variety of life into a savanna within 100 years. Now, we have done nothing except talk, talk, talk. For example, take to the Irish government now. They've come up, they've been talking about a, a climate bill for the last five years. They still haven't it on the floor of our rockers. And in the climate bill, they have no provisions for, for example, targets. Yeah. Uh, no specific targets. They have no timeline. Yeah. They find it, they, they, no way, they, they, uh, Ireland is a bit like New Zealand. We're one of the few countries where our climate change 
actually our agricultural sector are responsible for quite a, about 17 to 20 percent yeah. of our emissions, mainly because of methane. And methane is about 20, 22 times mm. more more heat retentive than carbon dioxide. So, on the one hand, we we have the Department of Agriculture saying, after the um, after 2015, when the quota system runs out, we want to double our herd. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no one saying, well, if we double our herd, what happens with the methane? And so you've had a very negative, mm. I suppose, in the, I, I, this particular second report is apocalyptic in mm. its predictions. Mm. The media loves to have a debate about climate change. Yeah. The debate is over. Mm. Now we're beginning to realise that we have a, if we continue doing what we're doing, we will leave a very, very damaged planet to future generations. Yeah. Is, that, is that just? Is it honest? And that we could have back here... With uh, a four with a four degree rise in temperature, you, you could have you could have uh, diseases like malaria yeah. back here yeah. within sixty or seventy years. You, a lot of those waterborne diseases could also become much more common, mm. because it's that kind of pressure. Because the problem is, you're going to have to ask people to make sacrifices to readjust the economy. It's almost like going on a war footing. Yeah. But by not doing it now, as has been pointed out, if you do it now, it'll cost you maybe 2% of global GDP. If you leave it for 20, for 20 years, it might cost you 25 and yeah. the possibility of never being able to bounce back fully. Joe Murray of AFRI, Action from Ireland, an Irish humanitarian organisation, talks about that organisation and the work it does. He also talks about the connection between the Choctaw Indians of North America and the Irish famine. AFRI is a small justice and peace organisation which was founded in 1975. Uh, so we recently celebrated our 30th anniversary. Um, and we focus, I suppose, on, on the causes of poverty and, and inequality in the world. In the early days when we were involved in commemorating the famine, we discovered that many groups and individuals around the world helped the Irish during our darkest uh, period during the famine time. Joe Murray of AFRI reads a famine commemorative poem written by Liam Lawton. The darkest hour when land no more would flower. The darkest hour when life's sweet taste was sour. Who knows the hour? the darkest hour and will there be remembering for those who died in vain and will there be a song to sing to soothe this cry of pain to green the earth again and will there be remembering of skies that knew no sun of winds that blew through leafless trees of birds that never sung O poor forgotten one and shall we sleep remembering the night that knew no end and life's sweet hope was vanishing because we knew no friend. T'was debt we did befriend. And among those that helped were the Choctaw, and it's an extraordinary story because, as you said, they had literally just been removed from their own uh, ancestral tribe lands. Yeah. 
you know, which they considered very sacred. So they were forcibly removed from their uh, ancestral home in, in Mississippi and forced to walk a, a 600 mile journey to Oklahoma in the dead of winter. Yeah. Now it was a very brutal event and a half their people died on that journey and they were, you know, forced onto a, a reservation in Oklahoma where they were disconnected from their ancestors, from their land, from their community. So it was a huge psychological and physical upheaval that they went through. But only 15 years after yeah. they set up in Oklahoma, they somehow heard about the famine in Ireland and responded with extraordinary generosity yeah. and made a collection of 170 euro and sent it to Ireland for famine relief. Nation, I just want to thank you. Choctaw Nation, I got so upset when I learned of your wisdom and your virtue. Damien Dempsey sings his song about the Choctaw Indians. Peter Lafargue, a native North American singer-songwriter of the folk era, wrote a special song commemorating the Trail of Tears. Why do they limp? Why are they maimed? It's the Trail of Tears. It's the Trail of Tears. They called it the Cherokee Removal. We play Liam Lawton's Cry of the Dawn and the poem The Darkest Hour to remember the famine. Joe Murray explains about the place of hedge schools in Irish history. So having done it in terms of famine, we began to look at other aspects of our history, particularly the hedge school. And really the hedge school represents a time of oppression in Ireland, a time of great oppression and exclusion. And uh, and that's so relevant for, for many people in our world today because yeah. the hedge school represented a form of education for oppressed people. Today on our planet, we're at the threshold of either destruction and disaster or we can make it a new beginning and and choose a new direction so I think we don't appreciate our power and the ability we have to bring about change and we've what we've got to do is realize that we've got to harness it and we've got to keep our eye on the prize which is the the ultimate prize the, the wonder of this planet that we live in yeah. and how you know how precious it is and you know there is beginning to be a change of consciousness but we mm. need to get more urgent about that John explains who Dick Martin was and his importance 
as an Irish and international animal rights activist. Born in Clifton, County Galway, Dick Martin, nicknamed Humanity Dick, 1754 to 1834, was an Irish politician and an animal and human rights activist who pioneered legislation through the United Kingdom Parliament to outlaw cruelty to animals. He was a leading founder of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, RSPCA, founded in 1824, which was the world's first animal welfare organisation. He fought for emancipation for Catholics, abolition of the death penalty for convicted forgers, and freedom for slaves. But he is remembered in particular for the legislation popularly called Martin's Act or the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act 1822. In environmental terms, Dick Martin was probably the greatest Irishman that ever lived. Dark Rosaline, written by Owen Roe Mockward, translated by James Clarence Mangan. Dark Rosaline, O oh my dark Rosaline, do not sigh, do not weep. The priests are on the ocean green, they march along the deep. There's wine from the royal pope upon the ocean green, and Spanish ale shall give you hope, my dark Rosaline, my own Rosaline. Shall glad your heart shall give you hope, shall give you health and help and hope, my dark Rosaline. Over hills and through dales have I roamed for your sake. All yesterday I sailed with sails on river and on lake. The urn at its highest flood I dashed across unseen, for there was lightning in my blood, my dark Rosaline, my own Rosaline. Oh, there was lightning in my blood, red lightning lightened through my blood, my dark Rosaline. we describe the historic march of O'Sullivan Bear. The March of O'Sullivan Bear. Donald Cam O'Sullivan Bear, 1560-1618, was chieftain of Bear and Bantry in Munster. The Battle of Kinsale in 1601 ended with the defeat of the Irish chieftains and what is described as the flight of the earls. The main leaders left Ireland for Europe. Before doing so, they nominated O'Sullivan Bear to take their place. But he too had to retreat from the lands which his family had ruled for over 400 years. His epic march went through the counties of Cork, Limerick, Tipperary, Offaly, Galway, Roscommon and Sligo, finally ending up at Leitrim Castle, the residence of O'Rourke of Breffney, where he was hospitably welcomed by Brian O'Rourke. 
In the short space of 15 days, he and his followers had marched over 300 miles over rugged, rocky and mountainous ways, crossing the swollen Shannon in midwinter. Continuously attacked, experiencing sleet and snow, with most of his horses broken down, O'Sullivan could not attend to the wounded. Only 35 of the original 1,000 had survived, 18 armed men, 16 servants and one woman. The retreat has an epic quality and compares with the flight of the Bunny Prince Charles and the retreat of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Native Americans. Donald Cam went to Spain and was the first Irish man to be knighted by the Spanish king and was awarded the Cross of Santiago. Later he was made Count of Bearhaven. Virgin Queen Elizabeth brought more turmoil to her land. She decimated the monsters, scorched the earth and all at hand. Then James I and Charles the Mark brought other greedy bands. They took the land of Ulster, killed their chieftains, pies and plunder. All day long in unrest, to and fro do I move. The very soul within my breast is wasted for your love. The heart in my bosom faints To think of you, my queen, my life of life My saint of saints, my dark Rosaline My own Rosaline To hear your sweet and sad complaints To my life, my love, my saint of saints My dark Rosaline I spoke to uh, Niall McNamara um, in Avondale House, County Wicklow, the former home of Charles Stuart Parnell, sometimes called the Uncrowned King of Ireland. And Charles Stuart Parnell was a contemporary of um, Michael Davitt, and also uh, he compares with the great Daniel O'Connell, um, Davitt and him being great orators. Parliament and Charles Stuart being a great parliamentarian, particularly a negotiator. So I asked um, Niall, could he just summarise what the contribution of Charles Stuart Parnell was to, to Ireland and in the context of the world as well as a great negotiator and parliamentarian? Well, John's nice to see you here in Avondale House. Um, Parnell, one would say his great achievement was in leading the Irish Parliamentary Party at Westminster into a unified force which took and voted, as directed by its leader, Parnell, and that block vote, when elections were close between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, the old Tory party, allowed Parnell and his party to make demands for land reform, for home rule, important issues the Irish question, as it would have termed it, 
and his ability, as you mentioned, to conclude deals, to negotiate, particularly with Gladstone, who was favourably disposed for, towards both land reform and home rule, unlike the Conservatives, yeah. he used those skills to the full. And the Irish MPs at Westminster voting as a bloc gave great ability for Parnell yeah. to negotiate and to deliver the votes needed to keep one party in government or to hold the balance of power and decide who will be in government yeah. according to how they would meet their, the needs of the Irish Parliamentary Party. In international terms, how uh, did some people rate Parnell and his abilities and contribution? Well, Gladstone, who probably did most of the negotiations with Parnell, especially in the 1880s, yeah. held him in great esteem. And Asquith, who became one of the Liberal Leader, party leaders and prime minister mm. regarded him as one of the, of the three or four most important figures yeah. of the 19th yeah. century. Yeah. And the fact that Parnell, as a constitutionist, would have been in the line of Henry Grattan, Daniel O'Connell, and those constitutional figures, although of course Parnell flirted with Fenianism to keep them on board, mm. but mm. His aim was to have home rule for Ireland yeah. and he used the land question, the land issue, as yeah. a means to further his home rule agenda. Mm. Yeah. In doing so, all the political skills and acumen and the negotiation needed to drive that forward mm. made Parnell a great constitutionalist leader and a man of great ability who used non-violence to achieve his ends. Yeah. Yeah. But Home Rule had been passed by the House of Commons, oh. by the Liberal government under Gladstone. Yeah. But of course the old House of Lords was Tory domination. They voted down the act each time Home Rule was put before it. Yeah. So the Liberal Party deftly outmaneuvered them on that. In the early 20th century they passed an act saying that the House of Lords could only delay an act from the Commons for two years. In September 1914, Home Rule, which was the objective of the Irish Parliamentary Party and which had been worked on assiduously mm. by Parnell and his successors, would have been passed had World War I not broken out in August 1914. Yeah. Now, of course, the Fenian movement did not believe that Home Rule would ever be granted. They believed every attempt by Westminster was an attempt to defer and delay it. Mm. So, of course, they rebelled in 1916, and that changed the course of constitutional politics. Yeah. The vacuum left by the constitutional movement was filled by the Sinn Féin party. What can you tell me about the Great Irish Famine? That was nice woods. Well, it's just that people died, and possibly the potato crop failed. Only that it was in 1848, I think, <laughs> around the 8th. Mid 19th century? 1845, yeah, to 52, no? Well, it was a potato blight. A million of us died slash emigrated. The Great Irish Family was a, a potato blight, it was an infestation of some kind of flies or some kind of an insect, and they destroyed a plantation here. It was the main food in the country, everyone was eating potatoes, and it, it, the export trade would have suffered drastically with that as well, and that's how the famine came about. Some say it wasn't a famine at all, it was more of a, a genocide, don't they? Yeah, they exported yeah. all the goods, didn't they? All the potatoes. Yeah, that's right. And all the, all the livestock into England. Yeah. The British Army were fighting with the French. Yeah. 
There's no, no food, no, no, no only potatoes, and they all had to go over, they all emigrated all over to Australia and America and all that. That's where all the Irish Americans are coming from, from all them, because there was no food here, and half of them died on the way over. True? Half of them died here too. Yep, a lot of them died on the way over on them boats. Cattle boats, not right? Well, not much about the famine, but I know the famine ship, the Jenny, was built in New Ross. And it went over to America, and it's now after being rebuilt, and it's now a museum down in New Ross. I just know it was—it's a bit like today with a lot of people emigrating and going away. So there are a few similarities with the modern day. Uh, I think there was about six million people emigrated, but over the course of ten years, there was a good over ten million emigrated. Became one of the greatest populations, and we still are. Built America, built Australia. I mean, we're everywhere. We've more people outside of the country claiming to relate to the country than they're actually in the country at the time. So that's the way I look at it. The question about the famine is a, is a valid question. A lot of people you know, want that opened up again, like an yeah, yeah. inquiry into it. And, and I think it's worthwhile, especially this new beginning with Britain, new friendship and stuff, it's time to bring things up, you know? Like. The British, they brought plantations to Ireland to like take the land and... The Ulster plantations, they would have, uh, would have been after the rebellion in Munster and the earls, the flight of the earls, the earls had been at war for nine years with Queen Elizabeth. Anyway, they, uh, she confiscated the land and King James ended up um, deciding to plant Ulster. Mary I, otherwise known as Bloody Mary because of her vitriolic hatred of Protestants, decided that she was going to, she thought that, she thought that the best way to colonise Ireland was to plant it. So her, her and her Spanish husband, Philip, decided that they were going to plant Ireland. And so their first plantation was the Leash Offaly one. And then, however, the plantation itself wasn't a great success. The next British ruler to plant Ireland was Mary's younger half-sister, Elizabeth, who was slightly different. She was just as ruthless as her sister, except she was a Protestant. So her... Her, her plantation was the Munster plantation. She hoped that this plantation would succeed in making Munster more anglicised and Protestant, which it kind of did to an extent, but not really. And, so she, and then she sent over loads of these English people who had claims to the land from Norman ancestors, which had lived there centuries before. And then, so that was the Munster plantation. It was slightly more successful than the Leach Offaly, but it wasn't successful as the last plantation, which was the Ulster one. What can you tell us about the penal times? Penal times? Oh, that's going very far back. The penal times when people had uh, little or no money and they were marvellous slave labour. I think it, it was when the... It was something to do with deprivation anyway. I'm not really sure. It was like English landlords and they were either charging too much or they just were being dickheads to the Irish as usual. Come on, you're good at this, you're going for good school taxes, yeah. It was all about religion anyway, people were had it Catholic, they had it went through hard times. I think it by um, Cromwell and all that time, would that be that? Right? Yeah, that's about right, yeah. Well, uh, yeah not really saying it right now, but that's all I know about it. But they would say mass and all and all this business, you know, yeah, that much, yeah, yeah from history. We've come to the end of this programme. You have been listening to New Perspectives on Irish History, Dreams, Themes, Myth and Ecology, part of the Sound and Vision series of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. I'm John Houghton, 
and I would like to thank all those who took part in this programme and the research and production team, myself, Paul Loughran, Alan Weldon and Neil Doyle. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.